Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. All right, we are moving on then. We are moving on. Thank you very much for tuning in. You can start calling us now, actually. Any questions that you have for The Naked Scientist on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. And, of course, The Naked Scientist is brought to you by Gross Premium Lager. Gross, choose interesting. Not for sale to persons under the age of 18. Chris, Good morning. Morning. Lovely to chat to you. Let's talk about beef, Thomas's favorite subject. Mm. Well, do you know, it's interesting because when uh, Nawazi got in touch and said, can we have something we could chat about at the start of the program? And I was thinking, mm, 702, 702, I always associate with you and Thomas. Well, and I thought Thomas and I associate with food. And then I was thinking beef. And there's this story in the journal PNAS this week, which shows that, in fact, Thomas, you might be in for a bad, a bad bit of news because... For the benefit of the planet, we may have to take beef off the menu in order to make feeding the 7 billion plus of us here on Earth sustainable in future. There's a paper by Ron Milo, who's a researcher at Israel's Weizmann Institute of Science. They have taken data from American agriculture because there's very good data for the amount of uh, food that Americans consume, the amount of fertilizers, the amount of animals, the amount of land use and so on. They have put all that data together and what it shows is, or they've been able to compute from that data, how much you have to invest in terms of land use and fertiliser and all that kind of thing per calorie you get out of any given food stuff. And beef uses 28 times more land, 11 times more water. It emits five times the amount of greenhouse gases and six times the amount of fertiliser is consumed in producing each calorie of beef compared to other foodstuffs like pork, poultry, other dairy and eggs. And even if we grow plants, if we grow food crops that are plants, then they produce between two and six times less of the bad stuff and consume two two to six times less of the bad stuff compared with beef. Hmm. So most people judge beef to be not that much of an impact on the environment. But these figures paint a very different picture. It's extremely bad for the environment to, to grow beef as a foodstuff. And we might want to consider in the future educating people. The point that Ron Milo and his colleagues make in their paper is if you ask the average man in the street, they'll, they'll say that probably beef is no better or worse than any other meat. Ah. These figures tell us a very different story. Very, very interesting. And I wonder how the agricultural community then will, will have to respond. Uh, this is not just about uh, the, the, the health of the planet, it's the economy as well. And uh, there's no point us making money and improving our economies if our planet is suffering, because ultimately we will lose. Anyway, our lines are open for you. Let's go to Caroline. Oh, you're calling us from Khaburoni in Botswana. Good morning. Hi, Reedy. Thanks mm. for taking my call. I'd, I'd like to ask the naked scientist, um, we, I, I often have this discussion with my husband. When the air conditioner is working, you know, you have the two buttons in your car where you can um, either get air from outside or you can recycle the air that is inside the car. Um, at, on which setting would the um, air conditioner be most effective? Hello, Caroline. Definitely Hi. with the air being recycled. Because if you're bringing in air from outside, assuming that the outside air temperature is much higher, and that's why you're trying to air condition the car, then the air conditioner has got to do a lot more work 
in order to take the energy out of the hot air you're bringing in and return cold air to you in the car, compared with if you were to feed it cooler, damper air from inside the car, which it would then remove the water from, your breath effectively, and cool it down a bit more. So therefore the best way to do it is to keep the air recirculating. recirculating. The aircon units have got filters on them, which will soak up some of the excess moisture, dust particles, dandruff and that kind of thing, small numbers of bugs and return cleaner colder air for you so that's the best way to do it because the aircon unit can only take the temperature down by a certain amount in any cycle of air going through it and if you feed it air at a very high temperature and it drops the temperature by say 10 degrees or so that, w- that will obviously still be a lot higher than if you feed it air which is much cooler and it drops it by 10 degrees or so Silo, Silo. Oh. okay your line is very very bad Silo. are you still okay. with us Yes, I'm still here. Okay, let's go through uh, it quickly. Yeah. Um, I just want to know from Chris, the International Space Station, is it geostationary like the, 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 the communication satellites, or is it also uh, uh, rotating? So the International Space Station orbiting the Earth, is it stationary or in motion? Chris? Yeah, what he's referring to is whether it's in a geostationary orbit or not. A geostationary orbit is a special distance away from the Earth, which means that any object placed there is turning and orbiting the Earth at the same speed that the surface of the planet is turning, and that means that relative to the Earth's surface, an object placed there will remain static or stationary. We use that position of orbit for communications satellites because you want to always be able to see your satellite so you can send it a signal and have it bounce it somewhere else. Uh, That part of space, though, is 36,000 kilometres out, and that's a long, 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 long way from where the International Space Station is. The International Space Station is much at a much lower altitude, and it is not in a geostationary orbit. So if you're on the International Space Station, you're seeing the sun rise and fall, sunset coming every 40 minutes, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, something like that, um, because you're going around the Earth many, many times every hour. Um, So... As a result, no, you're not geostationary. They're not spinning the International Space Station either. The Arthur C. Clarke model of a space station is one that turns and turns at just the right rate to spin so that if you were in one of the arms of the space station, you would experience a sort of artificial gravity because you would be experiencing centripetal force, so you're gluing yourself to the wall of the space station. This is not the case with the International Space Station. It's uh, on a a flat trajectory in space, uh, just going around a bit faster than the Earth is. Let's go to Peter in Krugersdorp. Good morning to you, Peter. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Um, Chris, um, I travel a lot, and whenever I'm in the northern hemisphere and I look up at the sky and look at a jet plane, whether it's in Europe or United States, wherever, they always seem to have a vapor trail or a condensation trail uh, behind them, all of the planes. But nowhere in the Southern Hemisphere, and I've been to Santiago, I've been to Australia, I've been to Karachi and all over Johannesburg, you almost never see this condensation or or vapor trail uh, occurring. So what is the difference in the the atmospheric conditions that means in the United States and Europe you get vapor trails and nowhere in the Southern Hemisphere you get this at all? Uh, An interesting observation. I've not made that Mm -hmm. myself. The reason you see a vapour trail at all is because the jet engines that are powering the flight are burning a hydrocarbon. It's a kind of kerosene, which is a bit like paraffin. And when you burn a hydrocarbon, which is a mixture of carbon and hydrogen atoms glued into long chains, 
then the products of that reaction are carbon dioxide, which is an invisible gas, but also water, H2O. And when the water issues from the engine, admittedly when it comes out of the engine, it's at something like 1,000 degrees C. But very quickly, at those very rarefied conditions up, up there high in the altitude, it may be 10 kilometres up where these planes are flying, the temperature is under 100 degrees, or minus 100 or so, minus 70, minus 100, and so the water very quickly freezes and you form ice crystals in the sky. And the vapour trail you're seeing are effectively very high clouds formed artificially from the exhausts of the aeroplanes. This should happen regardless of where you are over the Earth's surface. Why you wouldn't see them or see them for so long in the southern hemisphere, I'm not clear why that should be. They will definitely form and planes fly there at, a, at the same height. I wonder, though, whether it's just down to the density of flights because the northern hemisphere is home to more than three-quarters of the world's population and the vast majority of the flight routes that happen are over the northern hemisphere. And because the southern hemisphere is more sparsely populated and you see fewer uh, air movements, you may therefore see fewer trails just because they're less easy to see. And so the ones that are there, if they're less frequent and they're getting blown away quite quickly, you're not actually going to see them that often. And I wonder if that's the explanation, mm -hmm. that the physics and chemistry of it is it should happen regardless of which hemisphere you're in because it's basically the frozen exhaust of the aeroplane. Fariza in Auckland Park, hi. Hi, how are you, Rick? Good, your question? Yeah, I just want to ask Rick, how healthy it is to drink water first thing in the morning with empty stomach? Drinking water on an empty stomach? Yeah, first okay. thing in the morning. Okay, Chris? It, um, what, do, what specifically do you want to know about that? Mm, I think he, wa he wants to know if it has any imp impact at all. How healthy is it to be drinking water first thing in the morning on an empty stomach? Shouldn't be a problem, should it? No, not at all. Mm. Um, you know, we, we have desire. <laughs> we've been we've evolved to take in water as the main source of the fluid in our body, which is water, and the stomach is extremely good at absorbing it. And it shouldn't really matter whether it's the the nighttime or the daytime. If you drink if you drink water, it's absolutely fine. You don't have to put food in your stomach first. Um, it might make a difference in terms of how full you feel because if you drink an, a big glass of water, it it does stretch your stomach a little bit. And if you're trying to lose weight then some of the signals that come from the stomach regulate appetite. And so some people do put extra volumes of fluid in so that they feel fuller than they would otherwise do before they eat. So they, they tend to eat less. So that might be one modest difference, but it shouldn't make a, a health difference at all. All right. Let's go to, uh, is it Jerry in Pretoria? Hi. Yeah, hello. Really, you well? Yes, I'm well. Um, I was trying to ask Chris, was that data from Israel, was that done? Is it um, or is it natural grazing? Uh, what they've done is to take the entire country, uh, and so they've got the Department of the Interior and also Department of Energy data for all of the uh, agriculture across the country, and so that includes the very arid west as well as the much more fertile um, and better rained on, less arid uh, grasslands which are used elsewhere. And in the, actually, I think one of the referees of the paper probably picked them up on this issue that you're sort of raising because there is a, a comment in the discussion on the paper saying um, how you should also consider the irrigation of the plant-growing areas and food crops, which could be used for animals and so on. But, yes, it, it takes into account the entire country. Does that... Are you satisfied? Are you happy? Thanks, bye. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> uh, let's go to you, um, Daryl in Cresta. Hi. Hello. Good, uh, good morning. Uh, my question is very really simple. 
why do, why do people have different blood groups? Okay. Well, what is a blood group, first and foremost? The answer to that is, were you to look at a red blood cell, which is the tiny little thing, it's about one micron or a thousandth of a millimetre tall by about five or six microns, five thousandths of a millimetre long, and if you look at it from the side, it's shaped a bit like a, a number eight because it's thin in the middle and fat round the edge. Those cells, and there are billions of them in your bloodstream, have on their surfaces markers... And these markers are proteins which come in three different flavours. There's no, no markers, there's A markers, and there's B markers, and in some people there's A and B markers. Those markers present themselves to the immune system, and the immune system recognises them, and it's expecting to see the marker corresponding to you, and if you don't have that marker on your cells, then it regards those cells as foreign. And it's a consequence of human evolution that we have multiple sets of these markers because when humans first emerged from Africa, um, there was huge genetic diversity in Africa and as people migrated around the earth, then slowly populations were isolated for a period of time and some of these blood groups became more common or less common in some of those populations. And so we've ended up with different patterns or marker combinations in different parts of the world in, to a certain extent, and that means that you've got these different blood groups, and it's down to, to genetic diversity. And part of the reason they probably exist is that some of them are also associated with being resistant to certain diseases, and so you can see that in evolutionary terms, people would have evolved to have a certain blood group or set of markers on their cells. This, by chance, would have given them a resistance or an ability to overcome a certain environmental threat or a disease, so that blood group or that set of markers would have become more common in that small population and slowly as the population diversified you got a certain number of these things and we, we now have the, the three markers we have A, B and AB and an O being the one with no markers other animals have many more I think sheep have something like five or six maybe even seven so other animals have them too Thank you very much and uh, let's go to Roger in Musenberg Hi Hi Reddy mm. uh, Question for Chris Seems to be talking a lot about temperatures and water today. Um, when you're cooking, they often say you must bring the water to the boil. What I want to know is, does the fact that it's boiling actually do anything in itself? Or is it just the temperature you're looking for? In other words, if you bring it to 99 degrees instead of 100 degrees, uh, will it cook just as quickly? Or is it something to do with the boiling that you're looking for? Hi, Roger. Very interesting question. I've never really thought about that, but it's an important point because when the water is just warm, there will be convection currents in the water, which is where if you've got hot water at the bottom of the pan where you're heating the pan, water that is hotter is slightly less dense than water which is cooler, and therefore the hotter, less dense water will, will rise and displace the cooler, more dense water at the top down towards the bottom. So there will be a natural circulation but when the water is physically boiling, you're producing bubbles of gas. You're giving enough energy to the water to actually break apart the associations between the water molecules so they can expand to form big bubbles of gas. And so the boiling 
those big bubbles coming from the bottom to the surface will intensify the mixing action and also they will introduce agitation and a sort of gentle bombarding of the food with the water so i think probably actually the physical act of the of the of the boiling probably helps to mix round the water and any other things dissolved in the water and flavors and spices and that kind of thing and also helps to move the food around uh, and therefore you're probably going to get a better cooking than if you just had a constant exposure in one position um under those circumstances to um, f to your food item that you're trying to cook so I think it probably does make a contribution it's not always a good one though because um, sometimes it might bash the food to pieces and make your vegetables go all soggy so under certain circumstances continuous heat at a certain temperature is good under other circumstances boiling I think does help Thank you very much Roger and Chris you also have a question about water and food um, eggs in particular right? Chris hello. in Randburg hello oh, right. oh, hi. <laughs> oh sorry <laughs> <laughs> Am I on the air, really? Yes, you are. Okay. Uh, Chris, really good morning. Uh, Chris, I've got one of these little round egg boilers in which you can uh, uh, boil up to seven eggs at a time. And, and it's, uh, you put in water and it, then, you know, it, it, it seems to boil it by steam. But now, um, what puzzles me is that um, you have to put in much more water for one egg than you do for seven eggs, which to me is counterintuitive. And I'm trying to figure out how this thing works. Um, you know the little machine I mean? Uh, I've heard of it, and we've been asked this, I think, once before. And, oh. and I think it's just down to volume. I think it's down to the fact that if you put seven eggs in the thing, then they take up space. And they're therefore not going to have water. Um, because the eggs, if you, if you were to put the same amount of water in as if you were to put one egg in, then the water would take up a lot more space, um, the water would take up space, the eggs would take up space, and the thing would overflow, and then it would boil over. Whereas if you've got less water in there for just your one egg, I'm sorry, if you, if you've got, um, um, only one egg, then you haven't got six other eggs displacing the water out of the way, and therefore it's not going to overflow. So that's probably why you need a bit more. Very interesting question. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. And Steph in Ranfantine, hi. Hi, really. Hi, Chris. How come if you have a couple of drinks, you have a headache? And specifically with red wine, and certain people don't get a headache. Yeah, I think it's probably because the certain people who don't get a headache buy the good stuff. Mm. That's my view. They buy the South African good stuff. Um, <laughs> You know, certainly true. You can buy wines which are more headache-inducing than others. And it comes down to chemicals called congeners. And when you uh, produce wine, the action, or what's happening, the action of fermentation, is that yeasts, which are tiny microorganisms growing on the surface of the fruit, usually grapes, they will use their biochemical know-how to convert sugars and some other things in the grape juice into alcohol and they will also act on some of the other things which are in there so they can convert other chemicals in the fruit and different yeasts make slightly different contributions um, biochemically and that's why different wines have slightly different flavours and also the, the chemical composition of the um, fruit juice in the, in the first place that you start with will make a subtle difference to the flavour and texture of the wine. Now some wines will therefore be higher in some of these things that can give you a headache than others just naturally also, um, they sometimes add things to wines uh, during the production process which are not terribly good and they can result in it becoming more headache-inducing. And I actually have a friend uh, in Australia who runs a diagnostic and, and mm. also an analytical chemistry lab 
and he is a very big wine fan and he decided since he's got millions of dollars worth of some of the best analytical equipment in the world he would feed in some examples of some very very good red wine and some very very poor red wine and see if he could spot a biochemical difference between the two so that he could have a headache test so he would be able to say to people the headache likelihood or a headache scale of a wine. I don't think he's cracked it quite yet but he did mm. spot one or two molecules which are more likely to give you a headache were you to drink a lot of that particular beverage. Hmm. Forewarned. Thank you very much Chris. We'll chat to you next week. It's a pleasure. Thanks Reedy. Bye Thank everyone. Thank you very, very much. And uh, I'm sorry, I must say my, my SMS screen froze for a second and uh, I wasn't getting SMSs. I will print them and we'll save them and I'll ask them next week. Sorry about that. The Naked Scientist was brought to you by Grolsch Premium Lager. Grolsch, choose interesting, not for sale to persons under the age of 18.